to read to you the first five verses in 1 Timothy chapter 4. I want you to, as we read these verses, understand that they are the words of God for us today. Let's read this. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So let's pray. Father, I pray that as we study your word this morning, that, um, that we would um, see these as words, not just for some people a few couple thousand or a couple thousand years ago, but Father's words for us today. Father, I pray that we would see the seriousness in the text. Father, this is I mean every week is serious when we when we approach the text, but this uh Father, this passage seems to me a little weightier. And uh Father, I just pray that we would um as followers of you that we would desire to uh, to think through this and think through this with our lives and, and not just let it be another sermon that we can put on our belt uh, or another note-taking exercise that we can just um, add to our list of self-righteousness, but Father, uh, that we would desire to have hearts that are sensitive to hear you talk and hearts that are desireful to hear you speak. And so, Father, as we work through this text this morning, I pray that these things would be so. And, Father, you would be glorified in our hearts and minds today. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so I want to walk us through a few uh, passages, beginning with Genesis, that kind of lead up to this passage and kind of the thought that is going on with Timothy and Paul and the church in Ephesus, it's what's going on is this is not an isolated incident to the church in Ephesus. It's not an isolated incident to even the first century church. But it's something that we see from the very beginning and something that we even see to this very day. So let's read. First of all, starting in Genesis chapter 3, this should be a very familiar passage. I hope that as we work through Scripture, we find so much connection back to these first few chapters in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis really does set the stage for what will come after. Um, there is a lot of shadowing going on in Genesis that applies to today and helps us understand passages today and understand the text 1 Timothy, even chapter 4, here written in the first century, that it's a part of a bigger picture. It's a part of a bigger story. So, let's read. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 6 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree, it was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Let's move forward to 2 Chronicles chapter 25. 
I'd encourage you to read all of 25 this week, but just for sake of time, just we're going to read verses 1 and 2. Amaziah was 25 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. I mean, think about the longevity of his reigning under God. His mother's name was Jehodan of Jerusalem. And he did, listen to this, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not with a whole heart. If you read on, you find that Amaziah had everything external right, but his heart was far from it. His religion was merely external, and I think the same could be argued even back in Genesis, that even their actions were external, soon to be lured away into idolatry. I mean, that's what happens in the garden. They're following what appears to be, it looks, it appears that they are living in communion with God, and then their hearts are lured away into idolatry. Let me give you a couple of New Testament examples. John 6, 70 through 71. It says, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. About Jesus' words are pretty strong here. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon, Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let me think about Judas's life. How many years with Jesus? Probably three. Three years with Christ, following him externally, seemed to be good. Jesus knew his heart. He soon was lured away into idolatry. His happened to be money. In the garden, it was wisdom and being like God. And then we get to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Preached on this a number of weeks ago. It says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So, here in 1 Timothy again, we have the appearance of faith. We have the appearance of walking with Christ. And yet, some have been lured away into something other than Christ. You can find these examples all over the place where God's people are lured away into idolatry. You can find examples all around us today as well. God's people, or what appears to be God's people, are lured away into idolatry. I pray that you recognize even over the past week where your heart has been tempted or even given in to being lured away into idolatry. <clears throat> now I want to kind of set the stage with talking about the idea of apostasy, someone who is abandoning the faith. And I don't have time to, this morning to flesh out apostasy and all the passages that warn of departing from the faith. Um, Maybe we can talk about this more in house gatherings or something, but I want to point out, I, I just kind of give us kind of a base premise here before we jump into this text much further, that I think the idea of apostasy, the idea of someone departing from the faith, um, I'm operating on the belief and the interpretation that, that those people who appear to have departed from the faith were never genuinely a part of the faith. Um, now, that's an assumption that I'm operating on. That's an interpretation of Scripture I'm operating on as we work through the rest of this. <clears throat> but I just need to be, I think it's good for us to think about that. And I also want to set that precedent as we work through this, that that's the assumption that I am making as we work through this. That even the passages you can study in Hebrews that talk about apostasy and those leaving the faith. You see, I think when we put that up next to like 
passages like Philippians where it says, He who began a good work will see it to completion. I like what the pastor Paul Washer said. He said, if, God, uh, if, if, if the work isn't finished, then it never was a good work of God. It was just a very good work of the flesh that looked a lot like God's work. But the Bible says that God who began a good work will see it to completion. <clears throat> but nevertheless, the idea that one could depart from the faith should in some ways haunt our mind and serve as a warning to us. So on one hand, Yes, we can depart from the faith. But on the other hand, if it's genuine faith, then God will see it to completion. He who began that work will see it to completion. But the question for us is, could we one day wake up and realize that the good work that appeared to have been going on in my life has ended? That it stopped? What would that mean? Now, if you're a genuine follower of Jesus, then, then what happened was somewhere down the road, you hit the wrong trajectory. You made the wrong decision, and then came a long line of bad decisions that did not honor God, and then you wake up and go, oh my gosh, I, that work is not being done. And then I would argue that the very fact that you woke up, and if you turn in repentance, that, that again, that is God's keeping grace and turning you back. But if that trajectory never stops away from God, then the reality is, is that you, I, I think, I would argue that you were not ever saved. So the warning of apostasy, I think, uh, is not that those who are truly redeemed would ever walk away from the faith, but the reality is that we could all realize that we never were a part of the faith. Okay, So <clears throat> that just has a as an assumption that I'm bringing to the text based upon interpretation of another passage, particularly those in, Jer- in, uh, in Hebrews. I want to remind us also, as we work through this, the passage of Jeremiah 17, 9. It talks about the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Right? It's a very important passage that as we think through the idea of leaving the faith, that our heart, even a heart that's been redeemed, still struggles with fleshly tendencies. And I think as we think through this idea of could I walk away from the faith someday, I think it pushes us to know the Scriptures. It pushes us to check our hearts. It pushes us to measure our fruits. None of this in a self-righteous way. But all of this in a, is God at work in my life kind of way. The next thing, kind of before we jump into this passage, I want to talk about is the idea explicitly of idolatry. And just a couple, again, kind of baseline thoughts before we work into this is that any journey away from the faith always involves idolatry at some level. Any journey away from the faith involves idolatry at some level. Something has captivated your heart in place of God, right? That would lure you away. I'm captivated by God, or at least it appears to be. Then idolatry comes, and, and, and now all of a sudden my heart is captivated by something else. Your affections and your mind have grabbed tight to something other than God. I like what Timothy Keller says in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says, whatever controls us is our Lord. I don't think we think about it that way. I think that's helpful. Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. We all want to be in control of ourselves. We all want, you know, but... It doesn't work that way. We're all controlled by whatever we think is Lord. Ultimately, every lie we believe or are currently believing is idolatry. Maybe the lie that would lead you to be angry at your spouse 
or the lie that would lead you to forsake the body of Christ, or the lie that would lead you not to give yourself to the Word of God and submit yourself to the Word of God. These are all idolatry because you think about a lie. Where does truth come from? It comes from God, right? All truth, derivative or derived from God. So anytime we're believing something that's not true of God, then we're believing and trusting in something that is anti-God, right? Let me read to you Jeremiah 23, 16-17. It's, it's interesting, as I was studying this morning, I actually inserted this passage, so it will not be up on the screen. But Jeremiah 23, 16-17 was quoted this morning by John Piper on Facebook. And I thought, wow, this really really applies very well. Verse 16 says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. This is the prophet Jeremiah saying this. Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. So they speak lies, right, is what he is saying. They speak lies. They say continually, listen to this. They, listen to Jeremiah in the Old Testament. They, or the prophets who speak lies, say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. What do our lies that are not the word of God, what do they say to us? It will be well with you. It will be well with you. It will be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say to them, no disaster shall come upon you. And I think we live life in this kind of this balance of struggle of, of on this side, God is saying, my way and it will be well with you. My way and no disaster shall come upon you, at least ultimate disaster. And on this side, our heart, the false prophets of our age are saying, don't listen to the word of God. It shall be well with you. And as I was studying this passage, like, uh, he is talking explicitly about there being false teachers amongst the people in Ephesus that are promoting anti-gospel. And this is leading people away from the faith. Now I think in our day, there is certainly that same application. TV preachers, many of them, false prophets. I mean, it's all over the place. But I think in our day, many of us struggle largely with the idea of someone promoting false teaching. It's something that has become a part of our soul and our conscience and our minds that we promote to ourselves day in and day out and don't realize that we're doing such an atrocity. That we say to ourselves, this way, even though it is anti-God, it will still be well with me. No disaster shall come upon me when I follow my heart. I mean, isn't that the spirit of the age, right? As long as it's your heart, you'll be okay. Just follow your heart. What did Jeremiah also tell us about the heart? It's interesting because this is, you know, six chapters later that he's talking about stubbornly following the heart and he six chapters earlier says that it's wicked and desperately evil and sinful above all things who can understand it i tell you who can understand it jesus christ understood it that's why he said i'm going to give you a new heart right so the journey of knowing god is basically i would argue a journey in replacing the lies of satan our world and our sinful hearts with the truth of our creator as we journey with God, it is about replacing lies that we're believing that have gotten there from various different places, like our hearts, this world, Satan, teachings of demons, and replacing them with the truth of our God, knowing Him. So the journey of knowing God is basically a journey of replacing all the idols in our hearts that we have created based upon the lies that we have believed. The question really is, does what you know lead to worship of God, or does it lead to worship of something else? I think that's a good litmus test for is it, is it uh, 
Is it truth? Is it of God? Or is it of this world? Is it of my flesh? Now, this isn't 100% because you could be thinking that you're worshiping God when you're not really worshiping God. But, but generally speaking, is your theology leading to doxology? Is your theology leading to the worship of God? Or is it leading to the worship of something else? If it leads to worship of something else, then God, then I think you can rest assured that that is probably a lie. At least your understanding of it is a lie, or your application of it is a lie. So, with all that kind of in the background, just kind of in the back of our minds, let's go back to the text in chapter 4, and let's read this again. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. <coughs> for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it was made holy by the word of God and prayer. So the first main thing I want us to see this morning that I think we see here in the text is the real and certain danger of departing from the faith. The real and certain danger of departing from the faith. I think the greatest deception, or if if not the greatest, maybe that's too bold of a statement, but at least one of the greatest deceptions that Satan has us convinced of in our day is that you cannot depart from the faith. doesn't matter what you do, you cannot depart from the faith. As long as you have said a prayer, as long as you've walked an aisle, as long as you're a member of a church, as long as you've been baptized, as long as you do some righteous things, there is no danger of departing from the faith. I think he also has us convinced that in this journey toward heaven, if my heart in my heart, I can justify away sin and still be a follower of Jesus. That's why it's just so not popular to talk about sin at a heart level and not at just some external physical level. <clears throat> because we can hide, we think, what's in our hearts. But the reality here, according to the text... And not even just the text, like if that isn't enough for you, which it should be. It says here that the Spirit says that some will depart from the faith. The warning is real and certain. And this is why I think it gets weighty, at least for me this morning, is that maybe even someone in this room will someday depart from the faith. And I would encourage just from my heart to yours that if you think that, that's, that you could not do that, you would not do that, then you might very well be the next person too. In the back of my mind, not in a controlling way, but in a motivating way is the reality that one day I could wake up and realize that I have departed from the faith. I think it's a grim reality, but nevertheless a reality that we all need to be awakened to. Well, how's all that for positive and encouraging? We can all go cry in the corner and, uh, and then thank Jesus that He died on the cross, right? Alright, let's keep going, because I I don't want to end on that note. Uh, we would all leave here very depressed. I would too. First Timothy 1 1. Here we're going to talk about four things we know about the danger of departing from the faith, okay? Four things. First of all, <clears throat> verse 1 it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in a later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. The first thing, the Spirit prophesied it. How certain and real is this danger? 
If it's not enough that just the Word of God says that some will, here one person of the Trinity expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. There is a certainty to this reality. And we cannot live life as though this doesn't or could not happen. Like I said, I think the danger of our day is that we would live as though this cannot happen to me. Oh, I know I'm redeemed. Uh, I live with, I believe, a, a confidence of knowing that I'm redeemed. But there's kind of like that, like, a little warning there, you know? Just kind of st- stuck in the back of my mind that says, you could still depart from the faith. It just serves, not as a, again, not as a controlling thing, not as, a, not as a, uh, an idol in my heart, but as in a warning. It's kind of like the warning on, this, on the wall, right? It just, you walk by and you go, okay, I need to pay attention to that warning. If you want to call it a motivator, it shouldn't be the only motivator. But part of it, the Spirit says that some will depart from the faith. I would say some evidences that we don't believe the Spirit at this point is when we don't seek to guide each other to the truth in all matters. Are you worried? Here's the question Are you worried that your brother or sister could depart from the faith? That you could wake up one day and realize that this brother, this sister has departed from the faith. So how do you live with that as a reality? With that in the back of your mind? Well, you pursue them with the truth of God's Word. You pursue them in prayer. You remind them of the truth of God's Word. You speak that into, your, into their lives. You be a part of God's work in their life is ultimately what I'm saying. You be used of God to bring about sanctification in that brother or sister's life. I would say another evidence that we may not believe the Spirit or the Spirit at this point is that maybe we don't seek to know the truth of God's Word and how it applies in all matters of life. All decisions we make, everything we post on Facebook, everything we say to our spouse and teach our kids, or don't teach our kids and don't say to our spouse. Spouses. Do we know the truth? Do we seek the truth? Do we, do we want to apply the truth at every point? So the Spirit prophesied it. This is part of why we know this to be a certain and real danger the next reason we know it to be a certain and real danger is that demons promote it. Like there are spirits and demons actively promoting things, teachings, <coughs> teachings and such that would lead others to depart from the faith. This is not something that just might happen to take place. Though there are people that, not people, but demons, there are spirits of this age that are actively pursuing the results of people, humans, departing from the faith. This atrocity has the power of Satan behind it. Do we live as though it has that sort of power and strength Behind it, even in our own lives. I mean, think about this. How awesome of a plan. I'm not carrying with awesome the connotation of good. I just mean how crazy of a plan, how awesome of a plan that let's let people believe that they're followers of Jesus, slowly introduce idolatry, and then let them take down a whole bunch of people with them as they fall. What a great plan. All right, we're going to get on. We're never going to get done. Number three, there is a time frame 
for it. There's a time frame for it. How do we know? God's Word gives us a time frame. It's going to happen. (coughs) Now as he is saying this, he knows that it has already happened. And now he's setting a time frame for the future of it happening. I think what he's talking about here is that that will happen between the first and second comings of Christ. Now, whether you're a premillennialist or pre-tribulationalist or, or you believe rightly in amillennialism or whatever, it will happen, I'm just kidding, it will happen between the first and second coming of Jesus. Some will depart from the faith. It will happen when Paul wrote this, or it was happening when Paul wrote this letter. It is happening today. It happened before Paul wrote this letter. But you see, the danger is that we might think, well, this was something that happened back then, or this is something that might happen to people outside of the church, or, or, or maybe are somewhat connected to the church, or, or, you know, this doesn't happen to us. And I think we all have reasons for why we think that that might be the case. But number three, or number four, rather, it's a real and certain danger, is I would tell you this, that the warning includes us. That the warning is to us. It includes us. Us. This is not just to them. It is not just to a couple people. This was to Timothy concerning the people in Ephesus. Concerning the people who were a part of the church. And we understand that the idea of some will depart from the faith, that there's, for that to happen, there's got to be people who are evidently a part of the faith. At least from our visibility. right? We don't know the true depths of someone's heart other than that's deceitfully wicked and that God can redeem that and potentially has. But he's writing this to these people who have the appearance of faith, right? And I would say probably most of us, if not all of us in this room, have at least the appearance of faith. And he says that some will depart from that. The only, again, the only qualification is that they're coming from faith and departing from that. Now, depart. Let's talk about this, break this down a little bit. What does depart mean? It, it means to come so close to the truth, but never really having actually received. I think that's what's going on here in the text. Now, depart, the, the Greek word here is actually stronger, a stronger word than the word shipwrecked. Okay? It refers to purposefully, I'm sorry, it, it refers to purposeful, deliberate departure from a former position. I make this decision here and purposefully justify it apart from God. One step leads to the next step, leads to the next step, and I have now departed from the faith. I just want us to see that this is not necessarily a one-step departure. There's nothing in the text that's insinuating that this is all of a sudden you were a part of the faith and now it's just one step and you're gone. The idea here is it also speaks of someone who is very close to the truth but never really received it or has never really received it. Um, Man, church, I could just tell you that even in my, whatever, 10 years of ministry, I can count multiple times where I know we've preached the truth, taught the Word of God, and someone acts or lives as though they never actually heard it. It doesn't make any sense to me, but it happens. So the warning is for all of us. And, and this has kind of been a recent phrase or thought if you've talked to me at length about any of these such things. But I hope we realize that the first decision we make to do something contrary to God's will could be the first decision in a long trajectory of decisions leading us down the path of apostasy. 
So my question would be this, uh, multiple questions here. Do you make every decision with that kind of weightiness? This decision with my finances, this decision with the words that come out of my mouth, this decision with this action, this decision to not read my Bible, this decision to disregard what God says could be the first decision in a line of decisions that would lead me towards apostasy. (coughs) So do you make every decision with this kind of weightiness? Do you consider the decisions of others with this kind of weightiness? When I see a brother or sister make a decision that is not what God would want clearly from His Word, like my heart goes, Could this be the first decision? My second thought is, could this be this eighth decision and I haven't seen the first seven decisions that they made? Could my brother or sister be departing from the faith? Would you be okay with that if you thought they could be departing from the faith? Would you be okay with that? So do we consider the decisions of others, our brothers and sisters, with that kind of weightiness? Do you, next question, do you seek the Word of God and the counsel of God's church in order to discover God's will as if it carries the weightiness of this reality? That the decisions that you would make, that you're in the midst of decisions, that I mean, we make decisions all day long, right? Am I going to worship this or am I going to worship this? I'm sorry, am I going to worship this or am I going to worship God? Am I going to worship this or am I going to worship God? So, I, I want you to leave today knowing that there's a real and certain danger of departing from the faith. I want you to pray for me. That, that, that Matt would not depart from the faith someday. I pray for Rusty every day. Alright, so let's go for this. The next one's not not super positive either, but we're nevertheless we'll go. Three characteristics of those who have or might leave the faith. So either have or might leave the faith. Read one through three. I'm sorry, one <coughs> sorry, the last part of one says by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons to the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. Let's, let's break this down. First of all, what are, what's three characteristics? The first characteristic, that you believe teaching contrary to the Scriptures. By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. <clears throat> now, I, I think the warning for us is not so much that we would actively pursue to believe something that's contrary to Scriptures, but it's probably more the lack of pursuit of changing something we don't realize we believe that's contrary to the Scriptures. Again, replacing a lie that we've been believing maybe for 30, maybe for 60 years, and replacing it with the truth of God's Word. Many of us, I'm sure, do not go, well, I believe this, and I know God's Word says this, but I don't care. Now, maybe that's the case. But this is a characteristic that someone who has or might leave the faith, that you believe teaching contrary to the Scriptures by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. What are these teachings of demons? They're teachings that are not of God. Again, here's the picture. You have a person who is outwardly looking like a Christian, They understand the facts of the gospel on an intellectual level, but because they do not have the spirit to teach and protect them, when the teachings of demons come, they are lured away. The weightiness of this passage is that all false doctrines are created and taught by demons, ultimately. Do we see that? 2 John 1, 7-11 
says this, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. See that? Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now we preached on this a while ago, right? He's saying, stay away. Don't have any part. And yet, how much do we welcome into our minds? Or do we know is in our mind and in our heart, but we don't take the time to get rid of it? We don't take the time to repent of it and replace it with the truth. Oh, there are so many lies that we could and probably struggle with believing every day. You ever take the time just to sit there and pray and go, God, what am I believing that's not true? Now, usually what happens is, what we believe that isn't true works itself out in a display, or what we would call the fruit, right? The fruit of our lives, good or bad, that's where it displays itself. And so what happens is, so we have this anger, right? So we display anger, and we, we get mad at people, or we, we say things that we shouldn't say. And then what we do, we repent for saying something that we shouldn't say. That's okay, that's, that's good. But then... The lie that you were believing that led to that anger was never repented of or replaced with the truth and, I'm sorry, repented of and replaced with the truth. So then what happens is the next time that lie is believed or becomes activated in your heart, then you just do the same thing again. And then you have to, then you repent for the anger again or the words that you said again. What was it? all boiling back down to it was the lie that you were believing. Again, everything that you believe that is contrary to Scripture is a lie and a step toward departing from the faith. Again, we're fed lies every day. We're fed it from false teachers around us. We're fed lies from the world. We're fed lies from our own deceitful heart. So just a question of reflection. You know, what teachings of demons are you struggling with right now? Do you struggle with yesterday? Now again, you know, some popular teachers like for instance, Joyce Myers would encourage you, well, just, just tell yourself, you, you're, you, ha- you can have peace today. It is yours to have. My question would be, what about repentance? What about repentance for the lie that you're believing? And trust in the gospel. So maybe some lies that we're believing. Maybe, maybe peace is found when those around me are happy. Maybe that's a lie that someone in this room believes. No, peace is found in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ alone. Or maybe a lie is if I could just change my circumstances, then maybe, maybe I would grow more. Or maybe, maybe I'd be more happy. Maybe another lie that you believe is I can justify my own sin by doing enough right things in response to that sin. If I just get my life in order, then I would make God happy. Those are lies. Lies that require repentance. And then lies that require replacing those lies with the truth. What does God's Word say? Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Jesus is where our peace and rest comes from, not from other people and their happiness necessarily. Circumstances are going to change all the time, but you know what doesn't change? God. The Gospel never changes. 
the struggle to justify my own sin. You will struggle with that the rest of your life because it can't be done. But Jesus, God sent His Son, God sent His Son, Jesus, to be our justifier, right? All right. So you believe teaching contrary to Scriptures, contrary to the Scriptures. Next, you follow the path to a seared conscience. He says, through the insincerity, or sorry, insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. I want you to realize that these demons use human agents to deliver their lies. Okay? They use human agents to deliver their lies. These people may look like devoted Christians, but they teach lies. Just so we could be aware. It could be your neighbor, it could be a TV preacher, it could be a preacher down the road could be a professor and maybe even could be yourself but they're able what he's saying is that they're able to go about promoting their lives because their consciences have been seared i mean think about that so someone who's a follower of god the god of the universe who represents all that is true and pure how could you promote a lie that you know to be a lie that you know is contrary to what God has said if your conscience has been seared. Because remember, we talked about this um, two weeks ago, that your conscience affirms or denies that you're living in continuity with what you say you believe. So I believe this but I don't live that way. And then my conscience goes, oh no, oh no. You're not living the way you say you believe. But what's happened is that the false teachers have so ignored, misinformed, and justified themselves that their consciences are like scar tissue containing no feeling. And I want us to think about that for just a few moments. Where in your heart right now, with what issue are you misinforming yourself? Are you ignoring the truth? Or you are justifying to yourself? Because the danger is a seared conscience. your conscience. <coughs> Excuse me. All right, number three. Three characteristics of those who might or have or might leave the faith. Number three, you seek justification apart from Christ. He says in verse three, these false teachers who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food. You say, what, what does that have to do? Because anything contrary to the Scriptures can be the entry point of demonic teaching. Okay, First of all, we've we got to start with that premise. Anything we believe contrary to Scriptures can be and probably is the entry point of demonic teaching. Here the demons are focusing on something seemingly minor. I mean, even to us, I think we might look at that and go, well, that's stupid. That's pretty minor. But the danger here is seeing these elements as essential to salvation, and that's what was going on with the false teachers. If we do these things, we can earn our salvation. Either way, believers have all the salvation they need in Jesus and do not, and do not need to deny such physical things in order to gain salvation. But they were saying you did. You must deny these things. Now, I know all of us in this room would say this. I believe that salvation is found only in Jesus Christ. I can only be justified in Him. I think at least majority, if not every single one of us in this room, would, would shout that from the rooftops. But here's my questions. Then why do you hide your sin from God and others? Is it so that you can continue to work out the justification yourself for those sins? 
Now, now I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, because right, we can't hide our sin from God. But the act of not confessing it and, and, and repenting for it and seeking reconciliation through the gospel is you saying, no, I want to keep a hold of it so I can continue working out my justification for my sin. Second question. If we know that salvation is found only in Jesus, then why do you give self-justification for sin that is discovered by others? So, sin, someone else sees your sin, and they come to you and say, brother, sister, why are you struggling? Here, let me help you with this. And, and then comes, you know, like I said last Tuesday night in our house gathering, uh, it, it's like the team of lawyers, you know, enters into the room, you know. Someone points out your sin, and, and it's like defense attorney, you know. Dyer Groffalo, man and Schultz, walks in. Boom, the tiger is on your side, right? I'll stick with the lion of Judah. That was a bad joke, but. <laughs> yeah. Robbie said, you just got Jesus juked. All of you, Jesus juked. There you go. Next one. The, the next one. Then why do you try to make up for your sin by doing righteous deeds? Like you're just trying to justify your sin. You're trying to be your own justifier. So, I mean, the lies is that you could actually do these things. But we believe these things all the time. Or maybe another one. Why do you make laws around you that you can keep in order to earn your way into God's presence? Right? Right, salvation apart from Jesus is always a trademark in false teaching. The benefits that come from salvation apart from Jesus is also always a trademark in false teaching. Salvation and its benefits apart from Jesus is always a trademark in false teaching. I think, I think it's the benefits of salvation that you largely see promoted in television by television preachers. Because they'll be very quick to say salvation comes from Jesus Christ. But then everything after initial salvation tends to come apart from Christ. Or you use Christ like a genie in the bottle. Right? Big, big blue guy. If you believe you're justified by Jesus, then stop saying that His justifying work isn't enough. Right? When we try to justify ourselves, we're saying that Jesus' justification isn't enough. I have to do this. But what's going on here? Again, back to the text. They're seeking justification apart from Christ. So if you're seeking justification apart from Christ, this could be a step in departing from the faith. This is what the deal, the deal is, though. Praise God if you see it as such, repent for it as such, and seek God from that. That's probably evidence of God's work in your life, that you are redeemed. Like, there's this pattern of, I, I see sin, I see a lie, I repent. I have firm faith in my Savior, and I walk in forgiveness and justification in Jesus Christ. All right. Just a side note, again, a danger. Maybe you are the false teacher teaching yourself these things. All right, let's move on to something a little more positive and encouraging here. Number three, knowing and loving the Creator is a sure way to perseverance. This is a sure way to perseverance, knowing and loving the Creator. Now, I don't mean just this uh, cute affection for some higher power that is left to ambiguity and whatever I want to make Him out to be. Okay? God has not revealed giving you the opportunity to love whatever God and however definition and however you might want to describe that God. He describes Himself the way He wants you to believe and the way He wants you to love Him. God's desire is not, not that you would love the God that you create in your own mind, but that you would love the God that He has revealed in His own Word. Okay? So, first of all, know and trust God's revealing of Himself in His Word and in His creation. How do I persevere in faith? How, how can I ensure today? How can I work towards? How can I 
work out my salvation. I should know and trust God's revealing of Himself in His Word and in His creation. First of all, let's talk about knowing Him through His creation. 1 Timothy 4.3. Again, he says, Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. First of all, marriage and foods are glorious things that God created. He created them good. Just think for just a second. Without a God behind them, if it's all happened by evolution, then these marvelous things are the things that are worthy of worship. Right? Because if we understand creation, what God has created is meant to point us back towards worship to God. That's what's going on here. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with worship. Is the idea here. That these are things are meant to be received with worship. Not the things be worshipped, but the God who created them be worshipped. But without a God behind them, or a God who created them, then the things themselves, if they got to this point on their own apart from God, then those things are certainly worship worthy. So then follow the logic. Who would be at the apex of those marvelous things that have so evolved to such glorious splendor? Mankind would, right? But he says here that they can be received in a spirit of thanksgiving, a spirit of worship by those who know the truth. What's the truth that they know about these created things? Well, what's the I just gave away the answer, I guess. What's the truth that they know about these things? They know that they were created by a creator. And so therefore they can worship the creator. They can receive it with thanksgiving because they know of its origin and where it came from. So know God through creation. Everything in this world is meant to point you toward worship of that which is above this world, God. Right? So couple examples, that paycheck that you enjoy each week or bi-weekly or monthly or whatever it is should point you to worship. The air you breathe should point you to worship. Everybody take a deep breath. All right. Next, knowing God in His Word. The fundamental problem with teaching that would lead us away from Christ is the rejection of the Word, of God's Word. All false teaching and all false believing is a denial of God's Word. God had declared these things good, and they certainly were not a means to salvation, only Jesus is. So they were, de- they were denying both that the things were good, and that Jesus was enough. Those are two big denials going on with the forbiddance of marriage and these foods. So the false teachers were espousing two lies. One, that, God had cre- what, that what God had created was not good, so it was not worthy of worship. So he was, sorry, that what God had created was not good, and therefore he was not worthy of worship. The second thing that false teachers were espousing is that what God had said about His creation was not true. Paul affirms the creation story when he says that it was made holy by the Word of God. Now, I think the idea of the Word of God here at this point, in the, well, the Word of God generally in the epistles, is referring to the message of salvation. And I think it's interesting that Paul puts it here What were the false teachers espousing, right? Salvation apart from Jesus Christ. But what he says is you can receive these foods and marriage. You can receive those with thanksgiving because you know the truth. What is the truth that you know? That God created those, that He is worthy of worship, but also that salvation is only in Jesus Christ. It seems like Paul is basically pitting against each other the idea that God has provided salvation through His Son, Versus the salvation that the legalists are providing through their abstinence from marriage and not eating of certain foods. 
Guys, if we are to persevere in our faith, we must know God through His Word. Because what's going on here is that the false teachers are promoting something that is not in God's Word. God's Word is not support. God's Word is not in favor of God has spoken against this. So, we're talking about persevering. Let me ask you this. It's a test. Does your theology lead to doxology? Does your theology lead to doxology? First Timothy 4, 3-5. Again, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Guys, our knowing God must lead to worship of God. If it does not lead to worship of God, then it's not a work of God. It's simply a work, probably, of intellectual stimulation. We just have these facts about God that we kind of, you know, are believing. But it's not something that's changed inside of here. As when you're knowing God leads to worship of God, know this, that it should also lead to a desire to know more of God. Look at these two times in these couple verses, he says this. He says, are to be received with thanksgiving. So knowing the truth. He's talking about knowing the truth as opposed to the lies that the false teachers are saying. And the knowing of the truth should lead to thanksgiving. Should lead to worship of God. Why? Because we recognize who the goodness is coming from. We recognize that the creation is not worthy of worship, but God is worthy of worship. We recognize that salvation cannot come from our laws, but only from the hand of God. He says, he says this, that it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. Once again, what is prayer? It's a, basically another act of worship. So again, does your theology lead to doxology? Does it lead to worship of God? Remember, how are we going to persevere in our faith? How are we going to not depart from the faith? We should know God. That, and when I say by knowing, like knowing in increasing measure and loving in increasing, increasing measure that God. You know, it's amazing. I think when we settle for false teaching, believing lies that lead to fruitful sin, we miss out on so much goodness. You know that? You know that when we settle for something that's not of God, it seems delightful for a few moments, maybe even a few hours or a few days, or maybe even a few years. But what we miss out on. And I, think, I think what Paul is telling us here is that if we, are, if we are to not fall away from the faith, we absolutely, positively must delight in God. Some will depart from the faith. They're promoting Worship of creation and justification by yourself, but instead, what should we do? We should know the God who created all things. We should worship the God as the Creator. We should know Him in His Word and know His salvation. So we should live each day understanding that each and every decision you make is a decision to worship God or a decision to worship something else. If you choose to worship something else, it could be a simple decision beginning the trajectory of one day discovering that you have departed from the faith. But if you know God, worship God. You will worship God if you know God. Know Him more. Worship Him more. So I hope as we close and as we worship in these next few moments that that you realize, like that you that you that you look and see that there's there's a danger. There's a danger that we could wake up one day and realize, man, what have I done? What have I done? Approach every decision with a weightiness to it. Approach every decision going, how do I, how do I make this in a way that honors God? Really, how do, I, how do I make this in such a way that it represents God making this in me? Submitting to Him and yielding your decisions to Him. Yielding. And not just, let me just kind of throw it out there and hope that God writes it in the sky, right? Just go to His Word. 
What are the biblical principles that guide me in this? And, and then to look out for each other. Maybe some might depart from the faith. We don't want that. I hope we don't want that. Right? So, I want to pray for us. And, and, and I know that this is like, uh, again, not the, not the most feeling good sermon in the world, but uh, I pray that God will keep your heart and your joy and, uh, <laughs> and you're not dependent upon uh, my preaching to make you joyful, uh, but God to make you joyful. Uh, but I, I would say this last thing. <clears throat> if you're seeking to know God, you're submitting to God, desire to work out your salvation and persevere in the faith, then be encouraged, okay? Be joyful. Guys, if you can see God at work in your life, have confidence in that, right? Have confidence in Him that if He began the good work, He'll complete it. And trust Him with that. So don't live in a fear that's controlling you. Does that make sense? Because I know some of you will take this like, and then you'll just be, you'll just be motivated out of fear to do a bunch of righteous activity, and that would not be good either, okay? But trust God. Trust God. If He's working in you, trust Him. Seek His Word. Seek to know Him. Leave the rest. Like leave, leave, I mean, it's all up to Him anyways. But trust Him, okay? All right, let's pray, and we'll worship some more in song. Father, thank You again for this time, and thank You for Your words of truth that speak into a culture of lies, that speak into a heart that has been infiltrated and that is full of lies. And Father, help us to Help us to replace these lies with the truth of Your Word. And Father, uh, I, just, I just pray that, that we would be encouraged by Your Word. We would be encouraged by the truth that You are not here to leave us where we're at, but You are working in us, working to change us, working to move us forward. And Father, that even though there are some that will depart from the faith, Father, we know that there are those that you are keeping in the faith. Father, there are those that, that you have truly elected and that you will truly guarantee and see to it that their perseverance is indeed finished. And so, Father, just uh, let's pray that for those of us who see your hand at work in our lives, that we would we would trust in You. And Father, if we're unsure, if You are at work in our lives, if we're unsure that, that You are the one doing this work in us, that, that we would seek to know such things and be sure of these things. And uh, Father, just uh, give us the grace to follow You and to love You and to know You, Father. It's in Your Son's name we pray. Amen. Would you guys stand with us?